The object of the ellipse within science fiction offers numerous ways to reimagine temporality outside of the confines of linear progress. In part two of Ellipsis, returning to time knots and techno-utopias, we travel back to the techno-utopian ideas of the dot-com boom of the early 1990s to explore the now-fraught potential of constructions of digital space and generative music and the hope that technological advancement could bring society closer to utopia. You're listening to the Liquid Architecture podcast. Today, Coco Klockner talks through the permeation of finance into life, how media has changed how we present in the world, and the use of science fiction to communicate technology politics. Coco Klockner's playful and speculative short story and accompanying sonic work, Short Ladder, follows protagonist Kat's rollercoaster experience in the latest development in securities trading, personal initial public offering, in which investors buy shares in her. Coco Klockner is an artist and writer living in New York City. They are the author of the book KY and have published writing with Montez Press, Real Life Magazine, Spike Art Magazine and Burnaway. My name is Coco Klockner. I'm an artist. I'm living and working in Brooklyn, New York. I guess I identify as an artist and writer. I mostly do sculpture and uh, working with sound when I'm doing art. And writing is a bit of a mix between fiction and art criticism and other things. The piece that I have for Disclaimer is a very brief short story called Short Ladder. And essentially it's like a bit of a thought experiment, thinking about the role of financialization and its ability to permeate any sort of possible asset, including human assets. So I guess trying to consider like some contemporary forms of indentured servitude. I'm trying to turn that idea on its head to figure out, uh, like all of these things have very evil sides that get laundered very easily. So on, on one hand, the story is about financialization, but more than anything, it's about the laundering of such. So it's about a mainly one, one protagonist who goes through this process. It's kind of like implied that it's a sort of an early iteration of, of whatever this, this, personal IPO sort of offering might be. So you kind of get to observe as she experiences changes in her life, goes through all the like roller coasters of it being a good thing and also sort of experiences of the way that when financialization kind of spins off into its own world, it leaves behind the reference entirely and makes it very easy to sort of use use the pawns kind of as like bargaining chips that lose any sort of valence in their, their own respect.
some of the context, this novella KY was something I started writing and working on in like end of 2017 as, as one sort of boom and bust cycle of cryptocurrency was kind of playing out. And that stuff was all very new to me at the time. And uh, so it's a lot of like just self-education about what the politics at play were and kind of grasping for what the next five years would and basically have been. I feel like the types of stories I'm interested in are like pretty playful and lean into wordplay and double entendre in a, in a way that tries to figure out how the like moral story doesn't get too bogged down. Like in some ways, I'm always just suspicious as, of the ability to package some sort of morality tale as well as sort of appreciative of it. So it kind of makes like a metaphor for what the proof of work process is and thinks of it through like a body politic and through the way that libidinal economies and labor and pornography entangle and ask like what the literal iterations of like proof of work can turn into as it ends up framing streaming cam performers as, as like a possible engine for enlisting computer users into like a large crypto mining pool. So it, it all kind of leans into itself. So proof of work begins to have parallels to masturbation and the labor of performing gender in, in those contexts. And then just kind of leans into what the libertarian goals of society are and what kind of grifts they want to ride on. I mean, it kind of leans into the simple solution of thinking about like labor unions as, as like one, one possible resistance, which of course it's been really nice over the last five to 10 years to see at least stateside increased positive public opinion about that and um, seeing more successes labor-wise. And so some writing that came in between these two pieces was written for an online magazine called Real Life and was called Main Character Energy. This was a piece that was kind of thinking about the way that like cinematic logics have kind of permeated a certain subjective position that like may or may not be kind of like post TikTok. I sort of think of it as something that is existing prior to TikTok, but that TikTok has refined it down into like a very like distilled, perfect model of thinking about imagining the main character as the protagonist, as the framing of being in the world as if your life was a movie. Similarly, I mean, I'm kind of referencing certain leftist thinkers who have talked about cinema. I mean, obviously for the last hundred years, but thinking about it in terms of constructing subjects of a specific society and how easy it is to make specific forms of subjecthood more legible as a way to be rendered kind of ripe for influence. So I think if there's a through line there, it's kind of like thinking about the ways that economies and the logics of, of finance rear their heads in, in places that we don't necessarily think of them. In more kind of like less public audience writing, I've mused on this idea of how amazing it is that our like primary form of narrative or like if cinema is the, like the dominant form of narrative, which kind of becomes the like dominant form of morality tailing that like all of these movies 
operate through financial systems as well. So like each story gets built into an LLC, which is able to receive funding, which is able to go through this process of like purchasing a screenplay, which gets turned into, you know, it's like this process of, of capital is there the entire time. And it always gets sort of shrugged off as a neutral, or it's just like, oh, it just like allows something of a certain scale to happen. And usually that is the point that I'm kind of leaning against. I'm like, this is not neutral at all. There's, there's a reason that there's such a, uh, a lack of leftist cinema available in any sort of mainstream context. I think it's the permeation of, of finance into, into life that is what I'm interested in between those two and leading into this other briefer, much briefer piece. Pacing of the piece is sort of just trying to follow the standard like ebb and flow of encountering success or like giddiness, realizing that money was kind of not going to be a problem anymore. And the sort of confidence that she gains from, from having this validating component directly patched to her identity. I think the, the parts that get into more complicated moments are when her transness gets put on display as part of it. It's like the language of equity is so easily manipulated, I think, in this context. It's very easy for her to be talking about the ways that she was like sold on this idea as like something that was able to solve systemic problems. So it was like, oh, we're able to invest directly in you, which is able to like bypass all these things that you have to go up against when you're navigating transness, like privatized medical systems, let alone like workplace basics, you know, do you feel comfortable? Are you going to get kind of excluded in a, in a specific way because you're like doubly alienated? So thinking about the way that such a possibly violent system, which, which ultimately ends in her death when she's sort of victim of a short selling campaign of people that realize that they can make a lot of money by buying puts on her. So as long as she dies, they profit because anyone who invested has basically relinquishes their, their money to those short sellers through a, a kind of convoluted system. So that's like one, one kind of component. And the second component is kind of thinking about the way that she experiences this relationship that is kind of adjacent to the financial side of things. And she very clearly is losing interest in this relationship. And there's just kind of like a passing moment in which she's like, oh, I, this feels more like love than I've ever felt before. Just like having, having money, like having, having things that validate her in financial terms that like add this currency directly to her. And I think it's something that people shy away from, but it's like a very regular 
aspect of the current state of the economy that these these things are blurry and they directly intersect with your ability to feel loved and feel connected and, and whatever that like warm fuzzy feeling is from from connecting with someone else it it's a little blurrier than we necessarily would like to think it is like the history of bureaucracy more broadly, which has always kind of been a history of technology as well. Like filing systems have gone through very primitive versions of themselves and now are like, I guess already have gone through a wide process of digitization and making the interpolation of subjects more efficient. I'm always kind of interested in the way that social media has introduced the logics of bureaucracy into um, self-identification, just the way that uh, declaring pronouns and going through name changes and thinking on like certain logics on Twitter, like people kind of finding their coterie of people uh, through identifying their mental illness and their handle and like in some ways, I think the way that technology has interfaced with identity, there's something really interesting about people being able to change their sex marker if they choose to like include that as part of their social media in a way that like takes weeks, months, costs money, requires publication in a public journal or, or a periodical, these ways of becoming a real person happen through bureaucracy. And in the same way, I think that's sort of the logic that I'm approaching the financialization aspect through. I think that when talking about ways that self-structuring happens through these tools, either through technology or through finance, it's sort of daunting to have a real conversation about it because it's always filtered through these subjecthoods, you know, it's like the scale of it is really kind of too large to comprehend. And I find that's a hurdle when talking about it to people, because it might kind of start off like, oh, it's about finance. It's about, it's about movies. It's about whatever, you know, it's like, I like thinking about movies too. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, to like really think like, oh, what are you vulnerable to when it comes to influence? Like absolutely a lot of things for me, you know. In that regard, I'm I'm like a little less concerned about the messages of morality tales and more more like about the audio and visual and linguistic tools that are used to tug on heartstrings in order to kind of like achieve that moralization, if that makes sense.
was certainly like a staple of this, the type of YA literature that I would, I would read. And I'm kind of amazed at how many stories I've like sort of like not very serious YA literature that I have no idea who the author is at this point. And I just remember like the broad structure of a story, which from hindsight probably was all very influenced by the people that I visit now more thinking about like Ursula K. Le Guin's influence on just like what, what sci-fi can be and, and thinking about how they play with the roles of like anthropology and like twisted forms. It's kind of interesting to see the way that the stories that I was reading and as a kid, I don't know, they were playful in their own right without kind of letting you know that they were dealing with big ideas. And I feel like that's usually what sci-fi is doing at its best. The sci-fi impulse in general or like lightly speculative fiction is that it's kind of funny approaching things that are like near future because half the time it's just going to get fulfilled really quickly. So I think it's, it's pretty ripe for failure actually. Cause you're just like, all right, well it either played it out or it didn't, you know, like when I was writing KY, I was like halfway through the text imagining this sort of like cam girl powered cryptocurrency when I came across something called spank chain or something that was like literally the thing it was like oh it's it's a cam girl powered mining pool and that's what i'm writing about you know it's like all you can do is just finish writing and it's different than the real world because obviously you're imagining it through character building and all these other questions and in some ways i'm always thinking about how this sort of writing has to do more than I don't know, just like throw predictions at the wall. Like I think about how at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone I knew watched that film contagion with Matt Damon in it. And at least for me, it was, it was kind of like a huge letdown because it didn't really do anything more than like an okay job thinking about a few logistical struggles, the thing that we were suddenly in the middle of and like, just sort of feels like if it can't hold its own once that reality becomes banal, then it's not very good writing, at least for what I want it to be doing. But it was kind of the same thing with Short Ladder. After I started kind of playing with it, I was researching as I was going and I was like discovering this moment in 2008, this guy, Mike Merrill, financialized himself on his own accord and made available 100,000 shares of himself at a dollar a share. And he started off by selling 128 shares. And then the rest just kind of like spun out into its own sort of drama, very different than the version of, of like trials and tribulations that I imagine for Short Ladder. And then like even more recently, there's this guy, Sam Lesson, who's sort of some former tech VP who started a, a venture firm called Slow Ventures, and he invested in this YouTube personality, Marina McGilko. And it was the same sort of situation. It was like a couple of million to her and just to be her. And 
it uses all the language to to make it right and make it proper. But uh, at the end of the day, it's like there are very specific power dynamics that get instilled into a transaction like that. So I'm just interested in the way that the real world sort of resonates with fiction and vice versa. building a character I try not to intellectualize it too much because I don't trust my abilities to think through a problem as much as like a person probably I would trust my just sense of imagining a friend or like talking with someone who I trust or distrust and thinking about those specific ways that they kind of structure the world around their own protagonist position so I think everyone has the ability to do that. I kind of think that like most exciting people are people that actively go out of their way to imagine themselves as the evil ones, because frankly, most of the times they're actually very sweet people. <laughs> their understanding of evil is like very malleable or framed through something that is a fucked up framework in the starting point. Short Ladder by Coco Klockner is published alongside works by Savani Suri, MSHR, Catherine Ryan, and Lu Yang for part two of Ellipsis. Edited by Liang Luscombe for Liquid Architecture's online journal Disclaimer. This podcast was produced by Mara Schretfeger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. You can support our podcast and online journal disclaimer through a Patreon subscription for as little as $5 a month. Find the link in our show notes.